Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, where we talk about the many careers that intersect with academia and discuss ideas that can make academia more equitable, fun, and effective. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and this week my guest is Dr. Zoe McKellar. Zoe received her PhD and a Bachelor's of Science from the University of Aberdeen in Geosciences, and she is currently the managing editor at Stollard Scientific Editing, which, if you're paying a lot of attention, will sound familiar. Zoe loved science and science outreach and had many other jobs, including a career as a musician and jobs at cafes, as a manager at McDonald's, and then in medical records, where she ended up discovering earth sciences. In this episode, we talk about that path, what we can learn from large corporate environments about management, the barriers in geosciences from a class, mobility, and monetary standpoint, and how fieldwork and field camp can be a major barrier to entry for students. And while we don't explicitly link the problems of class and geosciences to systemic racism during our conversation, this is definitely a very big part of the problem, and one that we'll certainly continue to discuss. We also touch on imposter syndrome and why it happens, why comparing yourself in graduate school is never a good thing, and why it's a temptation, and a bit about how the history of colonialism impacts the use of language in scientific writing. We talk about that and more in this episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Zoe is now working as a managing editor at Stollard Scientific Editing, and if anyone's paying a lot of attention to this podcast, they'll know that I used to work there and that we also had um, Aaron Stollard on the podcast about a year ago. Um, but what I, one of the reasons I really, so we'll get into that eventually, but what I um, wanted to start with um, is Zoe's very non-traditional background into getting into um, science in general and specifically into earth science and getting a PhD. Um, so if we, if we think of like a very typical, and not that typical is good, but a typical path to grad school is one like I took kind of, which is like, oh, I was interested in science in high school. I got an undergraduate degree in science, and then I went straight to a PhD after that because I didn't have any better ideas. Um, Whereas Zoe had this whole amazing other career um, before she got into earth science. And so that to me is really exciting. And so Zoe, I was wondering if we could um, start before you even did your first undergrad degree a um, little bit about you growing up and how you got interested in spoiler alert music and um, what that was like so can we start with that and maybe some of the jobs you did along the way sure um, I mean it casts my mind back what seems like about 300 years ago um, it's, it's, it's almost like a past life you know so um so as a kid I was interested in in everything um and you know I wanted to be I wanted to be everything I wanted to be a paleontologist I wanted to be a doctor I wanted to be a fireman a fireman specifically um I I just wanted to try everything but uh, my mum says I was always collecting rocks and things but I didn't know the that geology was a thing so I didn't know that a lot of sciences existed I don't come from a background that's quite like rich in science there's no scientists in my family so I just didn't know it was something that existed so you go to school you do well they tend to push you in quite sort of traditional directions like teacher lawyer doctor nurse that type of thing so those were the careers that I thought were available to me so I thought okay cool I'll be a doctor that's what I'm going to do I'm going to be a doctor I'm going to save lives that's great um and that was all fine until I got really into music as a teenager as a lot of teenagers do uh, I played violin, I played viola, I sang, I did musical theatre, and I thought, do you know what would be better than being a doctor? Doing music. Because <laughs> obviously there, there are so many jobs, you know. Um, so that's what I figured I would do when I went to university. Um, and it seemed like a great idea at the time. I don't regret it. And I've had some amazing experiences doing it. But yeah, doing science was never something that even occurred to me at that point and so you did music and you I know you toured around a bit um kind of all over the world doing that and so at what stage did you kind of start winding down 
your music a bit and when did you start winding up your science career how did you even get interested in science and as as like a, a next career phase um, I mean, the science didn't come till, till quite a bit later. The The winding down of the music um, actually happened very early and not long after I got to university. Um, so I was doing a four year degree in music, um, doing, you know, some other subjects on the side to fill out a timetable. But it was just it, <laughs> doing music at university was very different to doing it, um, doing it before. Um, I... I grew up in quite a sort of, you know, low socioeconomic area um, and I went to sort of normal you know, sort of public school, uh, went to university and I was the only person in my cohort that hadn't gone to private school. I was the only person who wasn't having summers in the south of France and, you know, had had a car given to them on their 17th birthday and, and I felt very pushed out um, and I really felt like I didn't belong there. Um, and I was made to feel that way as well, um, which is really quite mean. I wish you knew then what I know now, but, you know, hindsight's a great thing. So I kind of quickly fell out of love with studying music, um, but I didn't know that it was really an option to change to anything else at that point. So, so I saw it through and I still did, you know, lots of amazing things, but I just... You know, the honeymoon was over. So by the time I graduated, um, I didn't really know what to do with my music degree. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll be a teacher because, you know, I didn't I didn't know what to do. So I applied to do teaching and then thought, this isn't this isn't what I want to be when I grow up. So I so finished university and I worked full time in McDonald's for a while, which um actually was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was a manager there and anyone that says working McDonald's isn't great, you know, fight me. It was awesome. Um, so yeah, so I did a few jobs in retail, you know, just nothing really coming to anything, but I got lots of management experience and, you know, lots of life experience moving around really. Um, I moved city um, from, you know, my little sleepy town in southwest Scotland. I moved to Aberdeen, you know, which seemed like a huge city at the time. Um, and I got a job in an insurance company. So I became an insurance advisor and worked my way up to being a branch manager there. Really good at sales, um, funnily enough. Again, not a thing that I knew existed before I did it. And that was all great until lost my job through redundancy and worked as a medical administrator for a while, you know, pay the bills and such. And it seems a very long convoluted road, but this is kind of what turned it around and got me back into doing science. So as I'd said, like, I didn't know a lot of sciences were really a thing when I was younger. And then when I was working for this uh, medical company, we did lots of medicals for, um, you know, quite, you know, high power people, people that were going overseas, working for oil companies, being Aberdeen. And um, we got lots of petroleum geologists in and I thought, huh, that's a thing. I was feeling a bit stuck doing medical admin, you know, enjoyed the job, liked the people I worked with. But I thought this isn't what I want to do. So I really need to think it was kind of make or break let's really think about what we're going to do. If you're going to change, it's now. And I thought, hmm, yep, petroleum geology, that's the thing. You know, you'll always have a job in petroleum geology because everyone loves the oil industry. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought, do you know what? Let's go back and do it. So I applied to Aberdeen University um, and got accepted straight away to do a degree in geology and petroleum geology and was so excited to go back to university like so so excited and I just took to it immediately and I thought and I instantly knew this is science this is for me this is the right thing yeah not so much with the petroleum geology though <laughs> Okay, so I want to go back to a couple of things really quick. One is to point out to people who may not know that Aberdeen is basically like the Texas of the UK, right? Like it's a very oil-centric place. It's the oil and gas capital of Europe. Ah, of Europe. Okay, so not the UK, of Europe. Um, 
I don't know if that's a self-appointed title, but you know, that's that's what it is. <laughs> Um, so that's just a bit of fun context and I'm from Texas so that's also a a bias um, of mine so I know that you mentioned you did like all kinds of jobs um, in insurance and in medical um, records keeping and and as a manager at McDonald's and I know one of the things you and I have talked about many times when we were working together is that um, that management experience actually came in really handy and that's something I might be like jumping ahead a little bit here but that's something that um, academia doesn't always uh, train its um, higher ups to do very well. And I was wondering if you could just give us a little, like a few like nuggets of wisdom, if you have them from those management experiences. Like what do you wish that every PhD advisor, for example, knew about like what you, what training you received at like a large corporate, in a large corporate environment? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the way that I got into management, I worked my way up through it, which was great for me because it meant that any time that I was working with um, staff, I knew exactly what I was asking them to do. And I was always so, so mindful of that. So when I was asking someone to do a task or to work an extra shift or something, I'd been there. And I knew what it was like. And I always made sure that before I spoke to someone um, and asked them to do something or had to reprimand them, for example, um, I always thought about when I was there, what was it like for me when I was in a position like this? And what would I have needed from the person that's above me um, to either help me or you know, support me in what I'm doing or to make it make sense as to why they're saying this to me. So I think that a lot of the time people in academia, they've been there a little while and they forget where they've been um, and what it was like to not be where they are. Um, And I think that just not, you know, they don't always sort of remember what it was like um, to be, you know, the PhD student, the grad student, the undergrad. So it's kind of remembering what you what you learned on the way up and not just thinking about what you've like what yeah. you've achieved. I'm also so. thinking about like all the the infrastructure that might be in place at like a big company that's like there to I mean I guess I'm thinking about like I think a lot of advisors know in their heads they're like oh, I, I was just here in grad school but also I'm doing like all these thing now things now I'm like teaching classes I'm writing grants I'm like doing all these jobs and it's almost like there's no one, uh, there's often not people like above, I mean, obviously you have a department chair and deans and stuff, but there's not really someone right above you when you're a faculty member to also like help you and be like, oh, I I know what it's like. You only have your peers. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting distinction. And I think if you haven't worked outside of academia, you like don't even know that this like sometimes wonderful other other yeah. other way exists in your working environment yeah I mean I think you're completely right it's like there is that that structure I mean the way that I got into management positions that I had I started off doing one job I got promoted to the next tier if you like and then to the next tier and while there is that in uh, academia it's not the same way it's not this nice little sort of flow chart almost this is your next step and this is what you'll be doing in that job and here's your job description it's so it's almost quite organic and you know yes you go from you know the ideal scenario is you go from being a grad student to a postdoc to a junior lecturer to a senior lecturer to a chair department head you know that's the kind of like you know regular um but it doesn't it doesn't work that way and there's so much sort of lateral movement and the sort of you know the the goalposts change all the time, whereas it's not really the same in, you know, corporate world. You know, it's more this is a position that exists because there is a job that this position needs to do. And then people move into it or out of it. Yeah. So getting back to story of Zoe, we are at Aberdeen University. You're getting an, a second undergraduate degree in geology or in petroleum geology. I always like mix up the terms or yeah. Um, so then then what happened? Um, how did you decide to go and get a PhD after that? 
so like I said, I went with, you know, I'll hold my hands up and say I went with the intention of becoming a petroleum geologist and working in the oil and gas um, industry. And um, that would all have been fine until I learned a little bit more about the oil and gas industry. Um, and, uh, and also realized that I just absolutely hated petroleum geology with a passion. I don't think I've ever done much more boring um, stuff at university than petroleum geology. Um, you know, no offense and all, but not for me. So that, you know, was a little bit of a spanner in the works, but I wasn't too, I wasn't too worried because when I went back to university, I had the, you know, hindsight being a great thing. I had the benefit of having done a degree before, completely unrelated, but I could take what I learned from being at university before and think, you know, everybody wants do-overs of things. And I think, right, what do I wish I had done differently last time? So I went and that's what I did. Everything that I wish I'd done differently, I did differently. Um, you know, I threw myself into university life. I made loads of friends. I joined everything. I volunteered for everything. I worked everywhere in the university. And I just tried to squeeze as much into those four years as I possibly could. And I absolutely loved my degree. And fortunately, I did very well in it. So I thought, huh, maybe academia is for me. I'm going to do a PhD. That's that's what I'm going to do. And I never had, throughout my undergraduate degree, really felt like I belonged this time. I felt like I was, you know, I was in the right place. I belong here. I was made to feel like I belong you know, I got on really well with the academics in the department. You know, different people were talking to me about different PhDs. It was fantastic. My whole future looked rosy and it was all in front of me. It was all great and, you know, yay academia. Um, and never once doubted that I'd be able to do a PhD at that point. And then went straight into it from my degree and thought, this is it. You know, feel like I'm on the path now. So can you tell us about your PhD? And that can be hopefully both um, the, I guess, personal side of that experience and also like what you were doing science-wise and are continuing to do science-wise. So my PhD, um, I was I was actually really lucky in how I, I, how I got to my PhD. And I was really fortunate in that I didn't have to apply for my PhD. I was doing my undergraduate um, mapping project and the supervisor that I had for that was, you know, I was chatting about how much I was enjoying it. He really liked what I was doing. And it was all very, you know, hmm, you know, oh, so you're thinking of doing a PhD? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Oh, there's probably a PhD in this. I could probably get some money. Are you interested? Oh, I'm interested if you're interested. And it was just, that that was it. The next thing I had to confirm a PhD and some funding and it was, a, everything was great. Um, I promptly broke my leg um, two weeks before I was due to start. So that was an interesting um, introduction to PhD life and had to completely change um, the the plan for the project because it was going to involve lots of field work. Um, so what I was studying were, was the... It started off as a very sedimentological PhD. It was like sedimentary rocks. I was looking going to look at how they were deposited and it was going to be all sedimentology but kind of difficult to do a lot of field work when you've got a broken leg that needs four operations over three years so you know I had to rethink it a little bit so I was looking at um, rocks that are about 400 million years old and it really came down to looking at basically their DNA where did they come from how did they get there and what happened to them on the way and then sort of reconstructing um, you know the paleogeography of what was going on at that time um which wasn't what we started out trying to do but that's what it that's what it ended up being and um yeah i i loved it i was i was so excited to actually get into the get into the office and get started doing things when i got back onto my feet and um then i i did love the whole thing but there were certainly um ups and downs throughout i had my moments where i had my i'm quitting tomorrow email all written out um and then you know, get top 10 off the ledge and such. But um, yeah, a PhD was just really, really different to to undergrad. I had no idea what to expect when I was doing it. I've never known anyone that's done a PhD before. Um, so I had no 
idea of what it was going to be like and it was really different from the security that I'd had as an undergraduate student suddenly being a PhD student who wasn't in a research team um, and everyone around me seemed to be doing what seemed like real science whereas I felt like I was just kind of playing with it and um, you know everyone else's stuff seemed much harder than mine <laughs> and you know but it's all relative, I guess. You can't compare, but it was really difficult not to not to do that. Okay, I'm going to hop in here and say a couple of things. Um, one, we'll define paleogeography for um, people who might not know. So um, since the Earth's tectonic plates have moved a lot uh, over the course of the whole Earth's history, um, one of the really interesting things we can do is try to reconstruct how the plates moved over time and how mountains were built. And so Zoe's work, I think you discovered like a whole t whole new mountain chain, right? Wasn't that one of your favorite? Oh, yeah, 800 kilometers long, um, 600 kilometers wide, I'm sort of guessing, you know, just the little one. No big deal. So that's what paleogeography is. And I will also add that um, we'll link to Zoe's, one of Zoe's or some of Zoe's papers in the show notes because... When I think about, I guess this is what I was thinking of when you were talking about like a professor when you were an undergrad being like, oh, maybe you want to come work with me because Zoe's figures, I have seen them in the pre preparation stage and the finish stage and they are like the most meticulous and beautiful things I have like ever seen. So um, we'll link to those and I can just imagine a, a professor trying to be all casual and be like, maybe you want to stay here with me. Um, <laughs> and I also wanted to say, um, it sounds like what you were talking about there at the end where you think everyone else's science is actual science and cooler and harder is um, that uh, feeling of the imposter syndrome that people talk about quite a bit. And um, I know I'm pretty sure you've been thinking about that a lot recently. And one just as your friend, I want to be like, no, you're a scientist and you do amazing work and your work is hard and it's complicated and you're good at math and all kinds of things and writing. Um, but I guess I wanted to talk about like, yeah, what do we know about imposter syndrome? Like, like, what do you know about it as an individual and what do we know about it as a community? And like, what can we do about it to like have less people feeling that that bad feeling? I mean, I guess for me, what I kind of understand uh, or what imposter syndrome feels like to me, if you like, is that I, at any moment, I'm expecting to be found out. I'm expecting people to realise that I don't actually know what I'm doing, um, that it was some sort of weird freak accident um, that I ended up getting um, my PhD. And even now, looking back, my undergraduate degree, because I have such doubts in my abilities now. And there, there's no basis for it. I've had no, I've had no bad experiences. At no point has anyone said to me, you don't know what you're doing. Um, I've had fantastic reviews for any papers I've written. My um, PhD defense was actually so enjoyable. Um, so I don't know where this has where this has come from because no one has actually said to me outright you are ridiculous and don't know what you're doing but that's what my brain thinks and I you know I, I don't know what it is and I think it really did start with that comparing myself to the other PhDs um and it's like comparing apples and oranges they're not the same thing you can't someone else is going to look at my research and go whoa this is really hard science and, you know, to me, it's like, no, it's it's not. It's it's boring. It's not good. Um, so I guess everyone has that to has that to an extent. But I think what I try to remind myself is, um, you know, the way that I think about things and the way that I kind of like talk to myself about how not good at things I am. I think if this was your friend that was saying this, what would you tell them? Um, you know, if they had the qualifications that you do and you know have published papers and such you know is there any basis that you would say to your friend um you know actually maybe you're not very good at this uh no there is not <laughs> and I think well I wouldn't I get really sad when I hear my friends talk about themselves like that and I think why am 
why can I not be that kind to myself, you know? So, but I guess it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, get a bit of perspective on it, I think. And I have quite high standards for myself. So it's difficult when you're not handing, you know, an undergraduate, you're handing in assignments and you're getting feedback and you're getting grades back and you know, oh, I got an A, I got 80% or I got, you know, I passed or, or what have you. You know, I won an award for this. You're getting this constant reassurance as you go along. And at some at a point, you know, you're not going to get that for your whole life. And it becomes quite difficult after that to, if you've learned that's how you measure your success, then it's really hard to work out how to do that afterwards. Yeah, and I guess also, like you said, like in grad school, you're comparing yourself to your peers. And like, if you're coming from an undergraduate degree where everyone's getting ranked on the same scale, like that's kind of a reasonable thing to do. And I guess like, yeah, for people who go from undergrad to like the working world, they learn pretty quickly probably that like feedback and like other things, like they can build their self-worth in a different way. But if you're going like straight into grad school or something why why not just continue comparing yourself like you kind you know like you said you never know what to expect when you start a PhD and you kind of the only reference what you have is your undergrad degrees you're kind of expecting that and then you're looking around and you're like oh these people are doing amazing work like mine's not good like yeah and lots of them were able to like really talk the talk and you know, really sound like they know what they're doing. But I, you know, I'm fairly certain that most of them were probably thinking the same things internally as I was thinking about myself. And I think a lot of people that meet me would have no idea that I'm, you know, give myself a hard time about stuff like this because they say, oh, but you come across as really confident and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of faking it in the hope that eventually my brain will catch up. So like I said, I was doing my undergraduate and decided I'm going to do a PhD because I'm going to do, I'm going to be in academia. So, I mean, we said about how in, um, you know, working in other industries, there's that sort of progression that happens. You work hard, you'll get to the next tier, you'll be promoted to that. And I think because that had been my experience and I have, you know, prior to doing my PhD, had no experience in academia at all. Um, I just thought, oh, okay, so, you know, I'll do my PhD. And then, you know, when I grow up, I'll be a lecturer. Um, You know, that's, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Um, And yeah, funnily enough, um, you know, shockingly, not a lecturer, um, as the majority of people will not be after a PhD, had no idea that the uh, academic job market is the way that it is. Um, so I did what everyone does when they come to the end of something. I found something new. So I got a job as a graduate on a graduate scheme at the university working in um, registry. So I was working with student records and such. Nothing to do with science. Um, but at the same time was p- trying to publish my PhD research. So I was working 40 hours a week in the university that I had studied in. Um, having to spend my lunch hours going to see people to talk about the research that I was still trying to write that I wasn't at that point getting paid to do, but was trying to get papers out there so that I might one day have a chance at working in academia. Um, and yeah, that was, that was quite a lot, but you know, so I worked through it and did really well in my job at university, got another slightly better job working as an immigration compliance officer for the university you know even less like doing science um and all the while still trying to trying to write papers and did actually manage to get one done while I was doing that but and you were probably working on others because haven't you by now gotten all your chapters out yes I have um I have now published three papers Yes, three papers. I did. I think I did eleven um, conference presentations while I was doing my PhD. Um, so, you know, some international conferences and such. But I didn't um, publish any of my research at that point because my um, the way that my research worked was it really had to all come together before you could start publishing it. And some of the analysis. Um, I was still waiting to get back a few months before I submitted my PhD. So there just wasn't the possibility of uh, of publishing as I went. Um, so it had to be get it all together and then, you know, publish it. So taking bits out of my thesis and then 
sort of reformatting them as chapters, as uh, as papers. So I did manage to get that, uh, get one done. I've now got three done, but I wouldn't have gotten the three done had I not taken some time out for a while to uh, basically not work and just write. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's such a, yeah, it's it's an interesting like combination of like what you talked about, like um, there is a progression in academia, but there's not like a guarantee that you're going to like, continue on that progression, even if you're doing a great job and then you end up, you know, working another job, which I definitely know about as well and, and trying to write on the side, which is just, yeah, it's like a pretty bad system. And <laughs> Yeah, I can't really think about the number of hours that I've spent working on my research since I finished my PhD because, you know, thinking about that's all unpaid and you think, wow <laughs> it's, it's a phenomenal phenomenal amount of work that that you're not getting paid for and I don't you know I, I didn't have to do it there was you know I didn't have to write it but you know there's that sense of you want to finish things you start something you want to get it done you want to see the conclusion of it and also you know what was the point in doing in doing the PhD and getting all of this you know this data set together and then just going, oh, okay, thanks for the shiny degree. Bye. Um, you know, I really, I wanted to see it through and get it done, but you know, it's 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 exhausting trying to do it on top of a job that's nothing to do with it. So it's completely different mindset, and it's really hard to switch between the two. Yeah, and it's like it's weird because you're working with people who are often still in academia, and so they're not always comprehending I guess like I'm this is literally probably removing either like energy from my my life and like or like money from my bank account like one of those two things or probably both and like yeah it takes a lot of brain power to like shift from immigration uh compliance to um yeah the tectonic history of Scotland and like um yeah, I mean, I guess the only fix at this stage would be to try to pay people who you work with after they're in academia, try to find some wages for them because this system is really... Um, it's broken. Yeah, it's broken. And it's it's just like, you know, it's so easy to abuse. There's no end in sight for, you know, you can't, you can't predict how many hours you're going to work on papers because of things like reviewers and stuff and... Yeah, so I guess like writing in grant money to support people, I don't know. It's a very, very tough fix though. But yeah, and I mean, there's there's so much unpaid labor in in academia. Even you know, not even just the you know the grad students that have finished their degrees and they're still trying to publish before they have um, you know their their real job, if you like. You know, you've got people doing um, reviews for journals. You're not getting paid for that, but it's expected that you do it. And, you know, there's so much, so much like that. And, you know, you know that academics are working, you know, frightening hours every week, but they're not actually getting paid for, for all of those hours. And the whole, the whole system is broken. But I mean, I was, I will say that I was incredibly fortunate to have such an amazing um, PhD supervisor um, who, you know, is who I've who I've published with. Um and he was incredibly supportive all through the PhD. Um and and afterwards as well. There's never been any pressure on him uh, from him for me to to publish. He he knew I would do it and he's like, you know, these things take time. You're working full time. Getting a paper done at all while you're working full time is a big deal. So you know I, I really felt like he got it, you know. And I think had it been up to him, he probably would have paid me to do it. But, you know, unfortunately, it's not up to him. <laughs> OK, so there were two other things or one other thing I wanted to mention was that I thought was really interesting is that, yeah, you you broke your foot or your foot, or your leg. Ankle. Right before the start of your PhD. And geology is like um, a has a reputation for being very fieldwork intensive and the the reputation is well deserved and one of the discussions that's going on right now in geology is about how this is kind of you know this is like a really big barrier to people who don't have who have like limited mobility or like 
can't go in the field for family reasons or health reasons or like many the many reasons that you can't go in the field um it can drastically change your project if you have something like that happen i mean in your case it's almost i mean it's not lucky that you broke your ankle right before your phd but it's like in a way i guess it's better than breaking it in like year one and like having to revise the whole project because i know people who had health concerns in like the first or second year of their phds had to rethink the whole thing and I guess I'm just wondering like yeah if you have like any particular insight about that or like if you have thought much about like um what it's like to be in this field and and have limited mobility and like how can we make it more welcoming and inclusive for people in that particular way and I guess in other ways if you want to talk about that too I will try not to pull out my soapbox right now um because this is this is something that it's probably a hill I'm going to die on. Um, so um, funnily enough, um, the reason that I did the project that I did um, for my undergraduate, the one that got me the PhD, was because I could not afford to go away and do a mapping project. So normally the mapping projects, the students would go away for six or seven weeks. You have to do 35 days of field work. And it happens over the summer. So it's, you know, it's not during term time, it's during the summer when you're usually off and where a lot of students are off working. Um, so you had to go away and do that. I could not afford um, financially or mentally to go away for six, seven weeks. Um, I was a mature student. I had responsibilities and such that a lot of the, the um, other students didn't, maybe didn't have, some did. And there were... Um, you know, things that could be done. So I ended up doing my project local to Aberdeen so that I didn't have to live away from home. And I was able to work while I was doing it. So it did take me much longer to do it over the summer, but I was able to do it. So um, had I not done that, I would never have gotten the PhD the way that I did and that would never have happened. So it just goes to show that, you know, you can't just have this one size fits all and that's what, you know, that's what you do. Um, and I think that it's in a lot of ways, um, geoscience is, you know, sort of seen as gatekeeping. So if you don't have the money for field gear, you know, there's lots of people that go into geoscience and they haven't done um, in the UK. Duke of Edinburgh is very popular. It's something that you do um, and there's like different levels of it. And you go um, you learn to be all outdoorsy, basically. Um, for part of it and if you come from a low sort of socioeconomic background you're not necessarily had the money to do that you haven't got the experience of doing that so you go to university and it's automatically assumed you know you go into the field that you're going to have all the field gear you're going to have the right boots you're going to have the waterproofs you're going to have the right backpack geoscience is a very expensive degree you have to pay for all your field trips you have to pay for all your equipment and you know and this is all just the financial side of it so if you've got any sort of mobility issue, which I did in undergraduate, um, I had some issues with my knee um, and was very slow in the field. So I was always at the back of the group and, you know, we'd get to an outcrop. The lecturer would start talking about the outcrop before I was even there. Everyone would get a chance to have a break and catch their breath before we moved on to the next outcrop. I'm catching up, missing half of it, and we've already started going because, and I don't have a chance to have a break. And it was it was incredibly difficult. And there, you know, there are several people that I knew that left um, geology because of things like that, and they, because they didn't feel that it was accessible to them and that they couldn't do it. They were actually missing out because of mobility issues, because of financial reasons, and they were you know, so not able to um, really get as, engage with it as much as, as they could. Um, I mean, I had one particularly horrible experience um, when I was doing my undergrad where um, one of the staff was heard saying to the other staff in front of students um, when we were at an outcrop, well, we better leave now because Zoe's going to take all day to get across this outcrop. I wasn't there, a friend was, um, and I was, I was mortified. I was absolutely horrified. I felt sick when I heard that had happened. Um, and 
I started, you know, sort of process of making a complaint about it and then and then decided not to because, I mean, it was taken forward as part of something else. So it wasn't just completely left. But I thought the only thing that they can do is apologize. And I don't want to hear sorry. Like, I was like, sorry isn't going to change the fact that it happened. Sorry isn't going to help me and it's not going to undo it. So I don't want to hear sorry because I think it's, I think an apology is pointless without action. And so I was, I was more concerned about action happening than having an apology because, you know, why bother? Um, and I just think that, you know, you have to open it up to more people. You have to let, you know, what if one of the most brilliant geologists is out there in a wheelchair, for example, and can't do fieldwork, you know? Geoscience is no longer, um, you know, Hutton bouncing about in the um, in the wild, you know, looking for unconformities. It's this. It's not what geoscience is anymore. Yes, there's a lot of fieldwork, but it's not. It's not this rite of passage that I think a lot of older academics think it is. I know plenty of brilliant geoscientists who the amount of fieldwork they've done is really minimal. Um, and yet their work is just as valid as, as anyone else. And I think if you just expect everyone to do the same thing, how is there ever going to be any progress? You know, it's it's not going to change. Yeah. And I think what you said about, yeah, there's no one size fits all in geosciences is like a, a really great way of putting that. Um, so you, you brought up the, I mean, and this has been discussed a lot, but I think it's still happening. So it could be discussed more that like, they, the costs and the and then inherently in that the classism related to a geoscience degree um which we also mentioned earlier in your music degree that is like such a such a frustrating and kind of like insidious part of like a geo the geosciences right now is that yeah but at my undergrad also there was a an extremely expensive field camp to attend to get a bachelor's of science if you don't get a bachelor's of science you get a BA instead that kind of like changes your I guess like calculation for what you're going to do next and so there's like a really big classism component to all of this too and one thing we'll do is like well we'll link in the show notes to some resources for um, because I know there are programs that are trying to kind of address this but I think also this is all related to the one size fits all thing I mean yeah um, going outside is expensive and it's not for everyone and there's a ton of things like modeling and lab work and writing all kinds of things in geology that aren't going out into the field and camping for like six weeks um and I guess yeah do you feel like this is like getting better in the community and like what else can be done and yeah what else can we say here I guess that can help talk about this issue you know I don't know any ideas I mean I wouldn't I'll be honest I don't think it's getting better yet um but I think more people are talking about it so hopefully that's the the first steps towards it and I think that people need to you know not be not be afraid of actually speaking up about it because it's not just things like you know um the financial side of things that's keeping people out it's like what people think that you know a geoscientist or any scientist looks like you know and you don't fit that I mean you just have to look at the sort of lack of diversity in science. Um, you know, geoscience particularly bad for it. Um, I mean, there was a sort of, it was like a running joke at um, my old university that there were more people called Dave in the um, geoscience, um, the School of Geosciences than there were women. Um, and it, I mean, it was true. It was true. Um, and geology was particularly um, sort of, not very diverse and it is getting better but it's just you know it's good that people are noticing things and I hope that people keep actually vocalizing when they notice things because I think the more that it's pointed out to people the more people are going to get uncomfortable and make changes because I think that it's people have been too comfortable with things just trundling along for too long and I think that people need to start feeling very uncomfortable if you feel uncomfortable about something then it's not right so you should be changing it 
Yeah, I mean, and, and actually, it's like, it's kind of exactly what you said about your like terrible anecdote from field camp, where like an apology doesn't really do any good, you need like action. And it's kind of like as a community, we're in the feeling bad about it phase, and maybe saying sorry, although I don't hear that much. And like, we're not quite getting to like the actionable steps yet. They're like little bitty baby steps. And it's like, I mean, one of the things is like, if, if you have an undergraduate program that has a fieldwork component required, you probably need to rethink that. Or at least you need to like provide an excellent alternative, not like a not like a half-assed boring alternative yeah. either. I think you just so. you need to be asking questions and you need to be noticing. Like if you've got um if your entire cohort is white, you have to be asking why are why are all the students white? What is is there something that's that's causing this? Is it something that we're doing or is it just luck you know is there things that are putting people off applying because of that you know as is the cohort 90 percent male um you know like thinking about why is that the case and sometimes there isn't really any reason it's just the way that it worked out that time but sometimes there is an actual reason for it and it is usually down to well it's just the way that we've always done it and this way it's always been you know and just because that's the case doesn't mean it doesn't need change. Yeah. And there's, yeah, it's like, is there a representation problem? Is there a community problem? Is the, is the community actively unwelcoming? It often is. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so speaking of opening things up and uh, hopefully, I guess, making a more inclusive geoscience community, um, I know one of the things you are spending your time on right now is um, size kits. Can you tell us a little bit about that you know it's, it probably comes across that I'm quite passionate about you know sort of you know engagement and uh, public outreach and stuff um but one of the things that I've been doing in New Zealand is that I volunteer for a charitable trust called House of Science so they work to improve science literacy in schools um so we're dealing with sort of you know primary school aged kids and we do science kits that they get to have for a week or two weeks. And it's full of all these little um, little experiments and such that they can do that really make science sort of come alive for them and show them that science isn't just, you know, old men in white coats and labs. It's, you know, lots of things. And it makes it um, very every day for them so all of the kits are themed so there's things like there's a my favorite one is the rock my world funnily enough um and it talks about earthquakes and such in new zealand you know kids know about earthquakes so you know that's something that kind of hits home for them and there's there are ones about um pollination about pollution and such that shows sort of the diversity in science and lets them engage with it and you know lots of the kids that we speak to say I didn't know this was science which is something that I've heard a lot from people is I didn't really realize that counted as science so I think it's really opening up um you know that science is actually for everyone and there's lots of things that you do every day that are science and you know it's not just about working in a lab yeah I love that um and I guess we didn't really connect your time at Aberdeen to moving to New Zealand, but like me, Zoe moved here kind of in the in the second half of 2019 to be with her partner. Um, and also like me, started doing some editing work and is now and like became a managing editor around the same time I did and is still a managing editor. So while, so while we were at that job together, we noticed a lot of interesting things I guess about what it's like to be a researcher um, who doesn't speak English as a first language for example so like the language of science is often English and that is another accessibility issue that is pretty crazy so people spend often thousands of dollars to get their papers edited by other people often with PhDs and it's not just a case of it being in English. It has to be in academic English, which is a whole other thing. You know, lots of people can write in English, but can you write in academic English? Because that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and the other thing that's really crazy is like some of these people, uh, are, like, the, you know, they often have, let's say, not 
Western Europe sounding names and their English is better or as good as a lot of people who grew up in the US and the UK and New Zealand and they get told by reviewers you have to get a native English speaker to edit this manuscript and I mean and that's ha- but that's happening after they've had us edit um, so they will come back to us and say, oh, you need to give me proof of editing because they're now saying that it needs to be checked by, you know, a native English speaker. And I think that so many reviewers are looking at either where the um, the paper has come from, who wrote the paper, the name of the paper, and making an assumption based on that. Oh, your name doesn't sound typically Western, therefore you don't speak English and you should have it checked. And you know, a lot of the time these papers have been edited and they're, you know, been edited by some fantastic editors, some fantastic writers. There's nothing wrong with them at all. And reviewers or journal editors are saying, oh, you need to get it checked by a native English speaker. Um, I mean, first of all, they might be a native English speaker and might just not have a native English sounding name. You know, you can't, you can't just make that assumption based on that. Yeah, so... Make sure you check yourself for xenophobia when you're reviewing a paper because people might be seeing it and not liking what they see. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, I mean, and yeah, the issue of like science imperialism and like even the fact that uh, most science is conducted in English is like, well, not conducted, but like, you know, I guess the highest impact factor journals are often written in English is like its own massive set of problems. I think the only reason that that is is because it was English speakers that decided on the impact um, system. Um, So, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And man, does that make me want to go into a whole tirade about um, quote unquote Western science and that could be just a whole thing in itself well so um, we could go on forever but that is I, I feel like we touched on a lot of things and um, I so appreciate you coming on the show and it's always such a pleasure to talk to you yeah you too I think I definitely think we burned through a lot of topics today <laughs> yeah we'll make sure we link to some of these and to some of Zoe's beautiful figures so <laughs> It was really nice to dust off my soapbox, I have to say. Yeah, That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Please find us on our social media pages, and we'll see you next time.